Section 7 of The Man on the Meteor by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Krista Zaleski. Part 7. I have said that those next three days in racks, the three days immediately following our return from the water of wild things, were critical. We did, indeed, have but little time for sleep. We were exhausted when we returned, Nona and I. We played with Boy a little, and then, with him beside us lustily practicing his newly learned swimming strokes, we fell into a deep slumber. Atar awakened us. The city, he said, was seething with excitement. Our return was already known. Rumor of danger, nobody knew just what, was on every tongue. Atar was pale but composed. Strange things are impending, Nemo, very strange, and ominous, frightening. My father bids me bring you to him now. He said it so ceremoniously, so solemnly, that his tone alarmed me more than the words. I sat him down, and he waited impatiently while Nona hastily prepared us food. Then, with Nona and Boy, we swam past Kane's house. Nona and Boy stayed there. I would not again leave them home alone. Then Atar and I went on, swimming slowly through the city streets toward the king's palace. The city was indeed in turmoil. I wondered how the news of our return had spread so swiftly. To do anything secretly of public interest and importance is difficult. And yet, how should the Marinoids know already that danger was all about us in the water? How could they know that war with the Magogs was impending? The city knew it. Rumor of it was everywhere. The streets had an almost holiday aspect. At every intersection, groups of swimmers were gathered. Passers-by were hurrying to and fro aimlessly. Women cluttered the balconies. A holiday aspect, did I say. It was not that. The crowds hung poised, talking in low tones. The swimmers gazed often behind them apprehensively. The women on the balconies stared down with solemn, frightened eyes, and hushed their children with overstern commands. Terror, not joy, was in the water that morning. A nameless terror, born of the unknown. I whispered something of the kind to Atar. Soon they will know what the danger is, he answered. Then will come enthusiasm, the desire to fight. The terror will be forgotten. Father's speech to them will fix that. Patriotism. That grim fortitude, courage, reckless enthusiasm, loyalty. Call it what you will. It nerves all but the most errant coward to face death. Yes, I said, we must give them that, or we are lost. As we swam forward through the streets, the people recognized us. Occasionally a few would cheer, but for the most part they stared at us silently. Some followed us. Soon there would have been a crowd in line behind us, but Atar dispersed them imperiously. The half-breeds. Atar, look there! In the doorway a figure was lurking. A man. I recognized him. He had never married, and I remembered that they said no Marinoid girl would take him for mate because of his Magog origin the half-breeds. I have so far mentioned them but casually. With both Marinoid and Magog blood, they were called Marinogs, a term they resented heartily. I had never given them much thought, had never known nor cared how many of them there might be. But now, as you shall hear, we were soon to deal with them in tragic fashion. The Marinog in the doorway stood motionless, and as we passed, I felt his inscrutable gaze upon us. Something in it made me shiver, and I turned and looked back at him. He was still staring, 
his face wholly expressionless. Attar pulled me on. As we approached the king's palace, the throngs in the streets grew denser. They cheered us more frequently now. But among them, everywhere I saw Marinogs, whiter, puffy of flesh, with larger eyes. Those were the real half-breeds. But I wondered how many there might prove to be, among us with that unseen, unmarked taint of Magog blood. The crowds cheered, but the Marinogs were silent. They swam about furtively, or lurked in doorways or in tangles of the street vegetation here and there, and always I felt their stolid gaze upon Atar and me. We entered the upper palace doorway, at the threshold of which the dolphin sleigh lay waiting on the platform. In a broad, low room, brightly lighted by rows of pods at its ceiling, the king greeted us. He was seated in a shell, on a throne built of smaller shells cemented together. Save for him, the apartment was empty. He kept his seat, and we reclined on the platform at his feet. Outside we could hear the murmurs of the gathering crowd. "'You must speak to them soon, my father,' said Atar. The king nodded. He was very grave. Perturbed inwardly, I knew. But outwardly, solemn and grim. Then, suddenly discarding his reserve, he talked to me as though I were his son. For generations, he said, this secret mingling of Marinoid and Magog blood had been a source of concern to the government at Rax. There were no more than a few hundred known half-breeds in each of the Marinoid cities. The Marinoid women were averse to mating with them. Yet nevertheless, thousands perhaps of the Marinoids were tainted. There were two reasons for this. First, some of the Magog men who had smuggled themselves in looked enough like Marinoids to pass unrecognized. And secondly, there were immoral Marinoid women in all the cities. Why, there may be several thousand of these Marinogs, these half-breeds, I exclaimed. But why should they all turn against us? Race hatred. Prophetic thought. We did not know then that the Marinogs would turn against us, and yet we feared it. They were looked down upon, scorned, and there is something always smoldering in the heart of an inferior race, a jealousy, a desire to prove that the servant is really the master. Though we did not know it then, our fears were all too well-founded. Og had already sent emissaries from the water of wild things. One by one they had smuggled themselves through the coral barrier and into the Marinoid cities. It was they who were spreading the rumors of coming war. Their insidious talk was inciting the half-breeds. They were telling the half-breeds that this was the beginning of a new era. The Magogs would soon rule in racks. The despised half-breeds would then take their place as rightful, honored leaders. The Marinoid women, those beautiful women who always had scorned them, would be their slaves. The king long had feared such conditions as these which were now coming to pass, and he told his fears to me frankly. Then he smiled. You have thought me unprepared, Nemo, he added. I am, for this sudden crisis, and yet not wholly so. Then he told me that for most of his reign, all Atar's life, in fact, he had maintained a secret cavern in Marinoid waters, where preparations for war were going forward. I had not known that. Cain even now did not know it. The strictest secrecy was maintained, for above everything the half-freeds and the Magogs had to be kept in ignorance of it. The cavern was not far from Rax, it was well guarded, and no one had ever been in it or heard of it, save a few of those known to be of full and loyal Marinoid blood. Not wholly unprepared, Nemo, the king repeated. After the next time of sleep, I will take you to the cavern. If this Og will only delay a little. A noise outside the palace interrupted him. 
For some moments I had been conscious of a growing murmur, a confusion, which now broke out into cheers. The king swam from his seat and we followed him across the room. Through a doorway upward we emerged to the palace rooftop. It was empty, but in the foliage overhead figures were clinging, and I saw that the whole open cube of water before the palace was cluttered with them. The shaded lights along the parapet were lighted, flinging their greenish beams outward and leaving the roof in shadow. A great cheer rolled out as we appeared. The king advanced to the parapet, and at his low-toned command Atar turned several of the lights to shine full upon him. He stood there facing the throng, his figure thrown into bold relief by the light upon it. The cheering continued. Figures fluttered overhead, seeking places of vantage. Then silence fell, and, extending his four arms outward to his people, the king spoke. Chapter 2 Atar and I crouched in the shadows at the king's feet. But between two of the illuminated pods, I could see plainly the green glowing water before us, with its silent, expectant throng of faces. The king spoke slowly, carefully at first. Gradually his voice rose in power. The smile faded from his face. With grim, forceful words he told of the Magog peril, bid all his loyal subjects hold themselves ready for his commands. A burst of cheering interrupted him. The crowd waved its arms. In the confusion, many of the spectators overhead lost their holds, or were crowded from their places. Then again silence fell over the water, and in the silence a single voice shouted two words. A female voice, the shrill voice of some marinoid girl. Loyal subjects! She called it out cynically, quoting it from the king's last sentence. She was directly across the water from me. I saw her plainly. A girl, who was considered one of the beauties of Rax. A half-breed man was passing near her, and obviously she was aiming the taunt at him. Loyal subjects! And then she added, That does not mean you, Marinog. It roused the half-breed to frenzy. He dashed at the girl, struck her in the breast with his arm. Instantly there was confusion. A dozen swimming figures cut off my view. Out of the melee the Marinog came diving. I saw him escape in the crowd. The king was trying to cover up the incident by going on with his speech. But they would not listen to him. From everywhere came shouts. Down with the Marinogs! Half-breeds! Tainted blood of the Magogs! The king's speech had precipitated the very thing he had been trying to avoid. In a sudden fervor of patriotism against the Magogs, the people were openly taunting all of Magog blood among them. There were many half-breeds in the crowd, lurking in secluded spots, eyeing the king with their huge, solemn eyes. They began slinking away, and most of the crowd let them go, except the Marinoid girls. Perversely feminine, the girls swam around them, taunting, laughing, jeering. The king looked down anxiously at Atar and me. Then, with sudden dominance, his roaring voice stilled the confusion. Silence all! Your king speaks! Are you Magogs that you defy the majesty of your king? Are you unjust to the half-breeds? The half-breeds are loyal. Their Magog blood is forgotten. Tainted they were by heritage, but their taint is washed clean by our marinoid waters. They are your brothers. You must love them. They are loyal to me. I trust them. Thus runs the art of diplomacy. There was nothing our king feared more, 
or trusted less than these self-same half-breeds. They stopped at the edges of the crowd and listened to his praising words, listened with the same impassive faces and inscrutable eyes. Loyal, repeated the king. And when the war is over, and we have defeated our foul enemies from the water of wild things, the loyal half-breeds will be honored among us. A crowd is easily swayed for the moment. Soon they were cheering the half-breeds, exhorting them to remain loyal. The girl whose taunting words had started the trouble was swimming toward us across the open cube of water. Some instinct at the moment caused me to glance overhead. A figure was clinging to the foliage directly above the king, a half-breed man. I saw his arms fling something downward, something long and thin and gleaming green-white in the glare of lights. It looked like a spear, but it came down more slowly. And then I saw it was swimming. A needlefish the length of a man, with a nose two feet long, pointed and stiff as a rapier. With increasing speed it was swimming downward directly at the king. Chapter 3 A second or two of confused thought too rapid for action. The needlefish was darting downward faster now than a thrown spear. The king was unaware of it. The fish's rapier nose would cut him through from back to chest. I found myself gripping the king's legs, trying to pull him downward. But another figure from near at hand dove at me. The Maronite girl who had taunted the half-breed. Her arms went around the king's neck. A flash of silver as the needlefish came at them. A choking female cry. The girl's body sank to the rooftop at the feet of the startled king. On her face, inert, she lay with the fish like a sword blade buried in her back. The king was unhurt. He was shouting commands at the excited crowd. Overhead there was a scuffle, a scream of anguish. The half-breed's body, he who had launched the needlefish, came slowly down to us. I saw a dozen spears from the enraged crowd sticking in it. We lifted up the girl, grotesque to my mind with her forearms, but by marinoid standards one of their greatest beauties. She was still alive. Thoughtlessly I pulled the fish from her wound, broke its sword-blade nose across my knee, snapped its slim body as one would snap a length of string. A thoughtless act. From the wound, the girl's blood gushed. It spread like smoke in the air. The water all around us was pink. Atar had his arms about the girl. Then he got to his feet, and with a command to the crowd to disperse, he swam away to fetch the man of medicine. The king and I knelt by the girl. Atar would be too late. She was dying. Child, said the king gently, soon you will be healed and strong again, and never shall I forget what you did for me today. But she shook her head weakly. Her lips twisted with pain were trying to smile at him. Her words were low, halting. The king and I bent lower to hear them. Loyal subjects. I was loyal. Didn't mean to start any trouble. You forgive me? Yes, said the king. Don't talk now, child. Loyal, she repeated. Everyone should be loyal to his king. I'm glad I could show to die for. The blood gushing from her mouth stopped the words, but her eyes were still smiling, smiling as they glazed and the light faded from them. And out beyond the stars, to join the selfsame god who watches over the Marinoids as well as you of Earth, her soul went winging. Chapter 4 Nona, I said, do you wish to go to this merrymaking? 
Kane, should I take her? It was two days after the attempted assassination of the king. I had not yet seen the cavern where the king was preparing for war. I was going there after this next time of sleep. We and Rax, the king, Atar, Kane, and I, were much perturbed at the turn affairs were taking. We knew now that Og's emissaries were among us, but they kept themselves hidden, talking secretly to the half-breeds, to all who sympathized with the Magogs. We knew all this, but we could do nothing about it. There was no police force or army, or anything of the kind in this crude Marinoid civilization. Soon the king would organize an army. We were planning to do that almost at once, as soon as the final preparations in the cavern were complete. And meanwhile, the king wished to do nothing that might precipitate further trouble with the half-breeds. An internal revolt on the eve of foreign warfare, that was what we most dreaded. It was at this juncture that some of the king's counselors suggested a public celebration, such as was always held at the birth of a child to the royal family, or on other festive national occasions. A celebration? When we were at the brink of war? To me it was a mistake. It could do nothing but humiliate, antagonize the half-breeds. They could not take open part in it. The Marinoids would not permit that. Yet, said the king, we had our own people to think of. There is a certain human quality of mind which turns to merrymaking on the eve of danger. You on earth have seen that in your own history. The Marinoid morale would be helped. To laugh, sing, shout, and make love, and then go to battle. That was what the people wished, and, against my advice, the celebration was to be held. Now in Cain's house, where Boy was asleep with Cain's children, we were planning to go to the cube of water before the palace where the festival was to be held. Take me, cried Nona. I want to go with you, my Nemo. Never had my Nona seen public merrymaking. The woman in her was very eager to go to take part in it. And I took her. With Cain, we started after the next meal. And Cain's woman stayed at home with Boy and her own children. My last moment decision to take Nona seemed somewhat superfluous. For all that day she had been getting ready to go. Clothes. My Nona was as interested in them as any woman of your own earth. She had made every preparation, and soon she swam before us, laughing with excitement and delight. I gasped. For the first time, I saw her usually upflowing hair, bound down to her shapely head, coiled and braided, and with a garland of tiny marine flowers in it. A new close-fitting suit with a girdle, and anklets of dull green, which by contrast made her smooth skin shine like polished pink marble. You like me, my Nemo? she laughed and she eyed me sidewise through lowered lashes, as though I were not her mate, but only one who wished to be. Like her, I did indeed. And looking back on it now from my withered old age, I can say that I have seen no sophisticated beauty here on your earthly beaches who can compare with my childlike Nona. The Merrymaking Then we started. The streets, more brightly lighted than usual, were bedecked with flowers, the light slanting down through the water from overhead lent queer, grotesque shadows to the figures swimming beneath them. The crowd was all moving toward the palace. Marinoid men and girls, gaudily dressed. The girls, I noticed, all more scantily robed than upon less festive occasions. In couples and little groups they swam along. The water rang with the gay voices of the girls. A cart passed us. A sleigh driven by a swimming animal the equipage of one of the king's advisers. But its owner was not in it now. It was loaded with Marinoid girls. 
As they swam past, one of them leaned out and tossed a garland of seaweed over my head, laughing at me provocatively. We three, Cain, Nona, and I, swam slowly onward. The eve of warfare. No one would have believed it who swam the grey streets of racks that night. And yet a figure lurked here and there. The Maranog half-breeds, from the doorways of houses, dark with the shades all closed, from rooftops, tangles of street vegetation, they hovered motionless, or swam furtively close along the walls of cross streets. I could feel their eyes upon me. At one corner we passed a giant half-breed man. He stood on the street bottom motionless, and he did not move to make way for us. I passed quite close to him, and I could sense that his figure stiffened, tensed. I looked back. He was staring after me, grim, inscrutable, sinister. Nona, I said softly, may the great god of the Marinoids be with us tonight. But my Nona was too excited, too flushed with pleasure, to share such solemn thoughts. We swam on close behind Cain. The palace and the water before it were jammed. Glaring green water, lights everywhere, crowds of gaudy figures, laughing girls alert to their sex, confusion, gaiety everywhere. I followed Cain, keeping Nona close beside me. On the palace roof we came to rest, near a sort of throne erected at the parapet, a throne on which the king and queen were sitting. Atar joined us. Will you eat now? Food is there, waiting. He smiled at my Nona, kneeling before her, and she bent down and touched his head with her cheek, marinoid fashion. We did not care to eat. Across the palace roof I could see servants of the king handing out food to all who approached. At the edge of the parapet, with the king and queen above us, and a tower gallantly at Nona's side, we sat down to watch. There was music in the water. I looked about for its source. At first I did not know what it was. How should I, since I had never heard music before? It came from a platform that dangled from the foliage overhead. On the platform were a dozen marinoid men. Three or four plucked at thin, vibrating lengths of fishbone, which gave off curiously twanging, but not unmusical notes. The rest pounded shells of different sizes, thumped them with resilient little hammers in odd rhythm. Music and sports. An orchestra, perhaps you could call it that. They played with enthusiasm and almost continuously. On the platform also were three marinoid girls. One of them, waving a long filmy road about her, was twisting her body in the music's rhythm. When she tired, the other girls took her place, and their voices singing joined the music. Nona and I watched, breathless, confused, but like children at your circus, eager to see everything which simultaneously was going on. Presently, several young men swam to different parts of the arena, and clung to the foliage. A young girl, one of the Maronite beauties, swam to the center of the open water. She hung poised, and as the music suddenly stopped, she unbound her coiled hair and dropped the garland of seaweed which had been adorning it. The garland drifted downward. The girl uttered a sudden sharp command. At the signal, the young men dove for the prize. A sharp scuffle. Then one, quicker, more fortunate than the rest, secured the garland and amid applause from the onlookers, swam up and restored it to the girl. Her embrace thanked him. With tenderly lingering fingers, he bound up her tresses and adorned them with the garland, and together they swam off to the rooftop to eat, or to sit down and watch the performance repeated by others. 
in another section of the water. The couples thus chosen were dancing. I can call it nothing else, swimming in close embrace in time to the music. And there were other games, the details of which I could not grasp. Combats between young men, bloodless, but real enough for all that, with the maiden's favour always as the prize. Nona and I sat enthralled. I was disappointed in my Nona. She wanted to join in the games. But I would not let her, of course. We were getting hungry. I turned to find that Atar was no longer with us. On the throne behind us, the king was adorning a Maronite girl, just chosen as the most beautiful. But where was Atar? A group of girls and a gay young man came swimming up and importuned the king. He listened to them, and then signed for Nona and me to approach. Nemo, he said, they wish you Nona for the swimming and diving exhibitions. I did not know what he meant at once, but Nona seemed to understand. Nemo, let me do it, please. Her eagerness was childlike. And then abruptly a tar dashed up. He whispered to the king. Then he turned to me. Nemo, come. Nona was still begging me. Let her do it, said Atar. We will be back shortly. You will stay near her, I said to Cain. I could not leave Nona again uncared for. Cain nodded, and Atar pulled me away. We swam from the gay, noisy scene, up a dim cross street which was silent and deserted. Atar had not spoken. What is it? I demanded. The Marinogs leave. The half-breeds! He increased his pace. Soon we were at the roof of the city, open water stretched above us. From the cross streets at the side of the city, figures were issuing, the figures of men, women, and children. They came out into the open water furtively, and mounted at once, little groups mounting upward to gather in a crowd above the city, and then streaming off in a line single file, a swimming line of figures which already extended out of sight into the dimness of the distant water. The half-breeds, Marinogs. All the Magog sympathizers were leaving racks. Rats leaving a sinking ship? Was that it? Or a gathering for action somewhere else? The water of wild things lay in that direction. Were they going there? Or to Ghana, sister city of racks? Ghana also lay that way. We watched for a time, and then Atar led me back to the festival. I need not repeat our speculations. Our questions soon were to be answered. We reached the rooftop. The swimming and diving exhibitions were in progress. Maronite girls of beauty and grace, diving from the overhead foliage down across the brilliantly lit cube of water. We saw hoops of woven weed being held in front of the palace, a dozen of them at intervals, and Nona was just then poised, ready for her dive. I held my breath, staring up to where her slim, pink-white figure stood gracefully on the wavering end of a huge, fan-like leaf high above me. A signal shouted by the king. Down Nona came in a head-first dive. She hardly made a ripple as she passed through the water. Through one of the hoops she passed, then swimming zigzag through other hoops, up and down, slowly turning over to pass a hoop feet first, then doubled up, spinning like a ball, and at last straightening out again swimming up and finishing on tiptoe before the king, graceful as a swallow alighting. My beautiful Nona. Even the Marinoids, strange as her mermaid beauty was to them, applauded her loudly. And the king smilingly touched her radiant cheek with his. My own cheeks burned with the pleasure of it, my pride in this girl of mine. Presently she was back at my side, and I was holding her close, while still they applauded. 
Then other girls dove, then we ate, and I, with Nona only, swam in time to the music, gaiety, the pleasure of the senses. And then, like a thunderclap, came a woman's shrill cry of horror. The music was stilled, silence, strange, uncanny, after all that laughter fell over the water. A little knot of people were approaching the king. I hurried there, found a marinoid girl of Ghana, a girl with frail body torn and bleeding. We laid her down, and to the king she gasped out her news. The half-breeds had risen into revolt. From Rax and all the other Marinoid cities, they had gone to Ghana. The city was in terror, bloodshed. And the Marinoid girls who resisted the half-breeds were being killed. The half-breed revolt, it had come. Chapter 5 Once before I had been to Ghana, it lay to one side, but fairly close to the entrance to the Water of Wild Things. Like Rax, it was built of marine vegetation, a narrow cylinder standing on end. There was a slight current to the water here. The city, sustained upright by its air pods overhead, nevertheless leaned to one side under pressure of the current. From a distance, it looked like your leaning tower of Pisa. It was a beautiful city, less densely populated and more beautiful than Rax. Its exterior surfaces, its sides and top, were laid out in parks and gardens. Large houses mainly balconied with ferns and flowers, and the entire top one broad public garden. In the king's sleigh we went there now. The water between the two cities was deserted. We passed straggling figures coming from Ghana, broken, bleeding figures, marinoid refugees escaping for their lives. They came on, swimming slowly, painfully. We passed a girl, floundering, then sinking inert. Ahead lay the dim distance. The water was pale green with its glowing, inherent light. Then it began tinting red. Atar gripped me, trembling with the horror of what we knew lay ahead, and the king urged his dolphin faster. Then Ghana. The outlines of the city loomed before us. A ring of hovering predatory figures surrounded it. We could see other figures launching themselves out from the streets desperately, and the waiting figures surging upon them. We halted our dolphin and presently, still at a distance, we mounted over the city to gaze down into its garden roof. A crowd of mermaids were huddled there, huddled in groups, trying to hide in the clumps of ferns. But the half-breeds sought them out. Swords flashed silver, then red. Faint screams of agony floated up to us. Slowly we passed over the city. A marinoid girl clung to an air pod. Three men, dead white of flesh, saw her there. They dove at her, their arms entwined her, tore at her robe. Two of the men swam aside, laughing. The other persisted, and at the girl's resistance, he suddenly drew a dagger and plunged it into her breast, furious because his comrades were laughing at him. There was a balconied, terraced home. Through the red haze that now stained the water everywhere, we saw a man and woman and little child huddled in a corner of the roof. From a roof doorway to the house below, a group of half-breed men appeared. They rushed at the marinoid man. A scuffle, and the man lay dead. Two of the assailants dragged the woman away. She was fighting them, screaming with terror, and they cuffed her face to subdue her. Two half-breeds were left with the child. One drew his sword, but the other held him back, producing from his robe a struggling white thing, a needlefish. Then they tossed the child upward into the water, launched the fish at it, through the child's soft body the fish bored its way, and everywhere it was the same. 
we swung upward beyond the sound of the screams, but the red in the water followed us. Figures were plunging from the city at every point, but few escaped the waiting ring of half-breeds. The water darkened with the blood that was added to it. Slowly, sick at heart, we retraced our way to racks. And then the crowning blow. Our guards at the entrance to the water of wild things had been set upon and defeated. A few had escaped to bring the news. Og's Magog army was advancing through the coral. With our preparations still incomplete, the Magogs were striking. The war had begun. End of section 7